Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, November 21st, 2016, the Peace, Dignity and Fascists edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department of the University of Birmingham. I am joined once again by my long-lost but never-forgotten uh, co-host, Kristala Yakinthu, who is a so Birmingham happy. Research Fellow. Um, well, you go away and the wheels of Western civilization and liberal order come off. I know. I like to think that as well. I like to think that too. I mean, I leave, Trump gets elected, I come back, Trump is still elected. Yeah, you're, you're not, you're, you're, your re- return is not <laughs> resolving these terrible problems that your absence apparently triggered. Yeah. So let, let, let's work on that. Okay. And back, one last tour for the kids uh, before he goes off on a period of uh, leave. Can I say what kind of leave it is? Yeah, if you want to. Exciting paternity leave that Mark Goodwin's going to be going on, which means he he won't be back with us for a while. But uh, one more time uh, to discuss the big issues of the day. How are you doing, Mark? Yeah, very well, thank you. It is a vile day outside in Birmingham. It's true. We are are huddled in the warm uh, embrace of the Muirhead Tower to discuss our two topics this week. First, Tunisia's Truth and Dignity Commission begins taking public testimony about years of past brutality on the part of the state. Is the first state to participate in the Arab Spring still holding on to its status as its last hope? Second, after the earthquakes of the Brexit vote and Donald Trump's election, is a populist tsunami about to wash over the West? And if so, what can be done to forestall it? In 2011, Tunisia became ground zero for the launch of a wave of protest and aspirant democratization when it overthrew long-serving President Zine El Abidine Ben Ali. He and his predecessor had governed Tunisia since its independence in 1956 with the aid of a brutal and repressive security apparatus. Just how brutal is now being laid bare in public as the country's Truth and Dignity Commission, after years of taking submissions, begins taking televised public testimonies from those who suffered at its hands. The commission is reported to have received 62,000 complaints, mostly focused on torture, extrajudicial killing and sexual assault carried out by police and other the state-authorized forces. The perpetrators of these crimes will later be expected to admit to their actions and apologize in exchange for avoiding legal retribution, and there's some talk also of reparations and rehabilitation for victims. To put this in some context, Tunisia is, uh, in the term of art we tend to use in this field, a fledgling democracy, uh, which is the last standing survivor of the liberalizing wave that we thought was the Arab Spring. So, Cristala, yes. you know about these things. Um, this seems like a perilously uh, tricky stage for a society like this to be uh, to be in. They are attempting to embed democratic institutions after a long period of pretty ugly dictatorship, but now the plan is to lay on the table everything that went on during the time when the dictatorship was in place. Is this liable on past evidence to help? Or, or hurt the process of keeping everything on the rails? There's a lot of scepticism around truth commissions generally because they're linked to the concept of reconciliation, right? So the idea is that you bear the scars of the past in order to reconcile the country with its past, form a cohesive, coherent narrative about what happened within your 
country or communities and move forward. So it's a drawing a line under the sand kind of thing, this idea of a truth commission. Mm. It's problematic because it often doesn't meet its very ambitious goals. And this was one of the worries about Tunisia, especially. But truth commissions are an interesting process. There have been about 40 around the world. Oh, that's a lot. I didn't lots know there'd been so many. I mean, I know about the South African one is like the so kind South- of high-profile gold standard. Yeah, South Africa is the brand of, of truth commissions. Yeah, and they're, they're the, the Coca-Cola of this sort of thing. Absolutely. Or and the Apple, for perhaps a more, uh, nah, a more well-liked were co- brand. No, Coca-Cola, I who's think. Still, who's still well-liked, though, among brands? I feel like both Coca-Cola and, uh, and Apple are a bit tainted. Anyway. Populism later. Yes. Yes, there have been, yeah. been about 40. There have been about 40. They started in Latin America, more or less, uh, with this idea that they couldn't prosecute perpetrators. So they would do the next best thing, which was to compromise and to have victims and survivors talk about what happened to them directly in either a closed or a public forum, right? And then there would be a, a kind of document that was often multiple hundreds of pages and then the government would usually bury that document um, and it would never see the light of day. Sometimes it did. But there were formulative moments in Latin America. It moved to South Africa and South Africa did this truth for amnesty thing. Mm. So if you, as a perpetrator, told the truth about what happened to you, then you would receive, and if your crime was politically motivated, you would receive amnesty and um, for your crimes. And that was specifically at the most basic level to be able to find people who had been disappeared to kind of open suppressed narratives Hmm. about the past. And so the concept of a truth commission evolved into a truth and reconciliation commission and has taken on various forms since then. And Tunisia is the obviously most current version. And there was a lot of worry about it when it was first legislated for the reasons that you pointed out, Adam, which is that in bearing the violence of the past or the multiple truths about the past, you can deeply, deeply divide communities as well. And Tunisia's concern, and one of the things that came out was the um, widespread use of sexual violence, right? Mm. That wasn't so well known in the general populace. And the truth, any truth commission is a reflection of the politics of the country at the time, regardless of how much they try to uh, stand above it. And so the truth commissioners had a real problem that it was uh, often women and men linked with Islam who were persecuted during Ben Ali, who were also on the receiving end of most of these violations, right? Mm. So... It was crimes uh, against the Islamist population that was exposed. And what that did was play into current fault lines where there's an Islamist uh, secular divide in the country but also a fragile alliance at the political level. So you've got these crimes being exposed against one community Mm. and both sides in a fragile political alliance not sure how to talk about the crimes that are coming out and then you have this truth commission that is bearing all and it's often a recipe for Mm. disaster but what's interesting is that the last the last few days of the truth commission so the first public statements they did a really good job of highlighting the um 
victimization of communities, so the way that economic violations happened, the way that torture was an individual but marginalized and affected an entire sector of of the country, gender violations, sexual abuse, uh, sexual sexual based violence both for women and for men, torture, but also the everyday kind of banalities and indignities that that authoritarian regimes often um, do. So what we have is this mapping in Tunisia of it being the only Arab uprising country really left standing, the bastion of hope, also in this really fragile state where they're fighting ISIS and Mm. there's Libya and there's this kind of eroding sense of the achievements of of the Arab uprising in Tunisia. Mm. And then you have this recurrence of authority, creeping recurrence of authoritarianism in Tunisia. So there's been this feeling over the last year or so that the, the gains of the Arab uprisings are being lost slowly through things like censorship and surveillance and amnesty bills, pardoning people who are responsible for widespread violence, and also the re-embedding of some of Ben Ali's kind of cronies uh, into systems of governments, right? Mm. So the Truth Commission came at a really, really, the public part of the Truth Commission came at a really vulnerable point. And what's been interesting watching the last few days of these testimonies has been how it's changed the narrative in the country. So it's really early, but it's almost reset the story. It's allowed victims and survivors to voice their tremendous anger, to voice the frustration that the Arab uprisings in Tunisia, the revolution hasn't gotten people to where they wanted to be, that this has been slow, that they're afraid of what's happening. So it's given voice to all of that. But so far, it's also opened a space for real discussion and I didn't expect that. I thought mm. that it would be it would be a really perilous point. And the last few days, I think, have really reset and helped people remember and people who didn't know both globally and domestically remember what this started as in 2011. So so something has shifted mm. and and it's not an easy road by any means and truth commissions are perilous absolutely but it's been an interesting few days in tunisia i don't know a huge amount about tunisia other than what we've talked about before before on this podcast but but from what i understand the dictatorship that they had there before resembled many that one had in the region which mm-hmm. is that it was a secular nationalist dictatorship mm-hmm. the main repression task at hand being to keep Islamism and, uh, and and left-wing activists as well. Right. So yeah, Islamists not, uh, and the left. Islamists and the left. Yeah. The classic, uh, yeah. uh, the classic one-two of boogeymen <laughs> to keep them out of power, and that's what th- that that was what the previous regime would have referred to as the sort of strategic threat-based justification for its actions. So are there those still knocking around in the system in any kind of position of? residual influence who still look back on what was done during this period of what's being characterized for the purpose of this exercise as unjustifiable state brutality and go yeah that was you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs that was totally justified you know we we faced real threats and we had to deal with them because the way the way 
the way this thing was set up and the way I, w I was reading the reports on it, the supposition was these people would present evidence and narratives about what had happened to them. Then the people who had done that would come forth and rend garments and uh, uh, confess their sins, say they were very sorry, and then everybody would be back on the same page. That seemed to presuppose whether through a sense of necessity or through a sense of genuine guilt that those people who had done these things felt they had to say they'd done something wrong. Is the country on that page, do you think? Or is there a... I mean, because in Egypt, for example, if you tried to do something like this, especially now the counter-revolution's gone through, the constituency of people who would just say, sure, we did all that stuff and we'd do it again uh, because it was necessary would be very large. How big is that part of the Tunisian situation? At the, at the political level, I think it's a, it's a very different context. Um, there has been a clear transition and there are stakeholders of the old regime in power still, absolutely. And there is a lot of tension. There's there's the, the, the feeling that I expressed of frustra frustration with this creeping re-authoritarianism. So people mm. who were part of the regime who had been barred, there was a very early vetting process, very, very early in 2012, They've been barred from taking any kind of public offices. That barring was lifted. So there's this kind of creeping sense that things are going back, which means that there isn't this widespread kind of um, hair shirt on your knees beating of, of, of self about the past. But there is enough momentum, I think, that there's a recognition that one wouldn't be boasting about it in public, let's put it like that. That's the political level. At the public level, it's very different because the Tunisian, the, the Arab uprisings were as much about dignity and mm. economic justice as they were about individual justice and, and uh, freedom from, from kind of that, that civil and political, at the civil and political level, right? So it was money and distribution of resources was really important and especially in Tunisia and this is why it's called the Truth and Dignity Commission. So there is at the public level a real frustration that people who controlled resources then continue to control resources now and this concept of revolution for economic justice mm. has slipped almost completely away. And so what you hear on the street is this um, resentful murmuring sometimes that we were better off under Ben Ali. So and from whom does that murmuring it's mostly from, come? Uh, people, I mean, unemployment is rising in Tunisia at rapid levels, particularly youth unemployment, and particularly in regions that were um, marginalised during the, the, the dictatorship periods, right? So people, young people in the central area of, of Tunisia, people like you, people who have been unemployed or displaced, usually older men who were more entrenched in the system. I mean, you hear it at the, at the everyday conversation level that how much have, has things changed. That is not a sentiment expressed by victims and survivors, right? Mm. It's, a, it's a sentiment expressed by people who haven't directly uh, suffered at the hands of the regime. Which is why but this process has, has some importance, as you were saying, because if, if this is suddenly being foregrounded again yeah. in a very public and inescapable way, yeah. then... You, you use the word resets the narrative. It, it it makes that kind of tacit dismissal of the reality of a lot of what went on yeah. more difficult to do if you suddenly have 
detailed yeah. first person presentations of, of, of over and over again yeah. I, I wonder if you could say something Cristela about the, the record of these kind of exercises more generally I mean you mentioned there's been some 40 truth and or truth commissions of these yeah. kind of things I wonder if you could say something about how often these things are successful what even counts as success yeah or what the you know what kind of conditions would be favorable to you know to a good outcome from this kind of thing and which which are, are, are not favorable truth commissions for me have a lot of problems right they're they're extremely ambitious and they're both forward-looking in that they're trying to help they're a critical they position themselves as a critical moment in time where you're exposing the past so it's backwards looking in order to build a more a more stable future so it's also forward looking so you need to reveal something about what happened in these atrocities and this sense of learning in order to build and the in order to build is the scary bit because you set really ambitious but badly defined uh, boundaries for yourself as a truth commission in this ideal of changing the narrative and Often, much more often than not, they fail to achieve that because they set unrealistic expectations among the public and especially among victims and survivors. So there's, it's based on this idea of repair, uh, repair of harm, re-establishing of, of suppressed narratives, acknowledgement of, of uh, suffering but also of indignities. And that it can do, it can, it can re-establish a narrative, but it doesn't mean that that narrative isn't going to be contested. So often, as I said, a government will bury the, the, the findings of the Truth Commission in the past, or, I mean, even more recently in 2007-8, Kenya hasn't released all of the findings of its Truth Commission. And if you do come out with a, finding, a series of findings about what happened, usually Truth Commissions will also set themselves or set the state recommendations, as well as, like in Tunisia, reparations for victims and survivors. Mm. So it falls into a bunch of practical problems. And the first is that you need to get the state to agree to the recommendations that you suggest. That's its own political task, and often it fails in the short term. And I'll say something about the long term in a second. But the second thing about reparations is often they don't have the money. So... You bring victims and survivors who were marginalised to this public space where they talk about what happened to them with the hope that something will be repaired. And in some cases, the acknowledgement is really important, the symbolic reparation. But often what is needed is also psychosocial support, is education for their children because that's been taken away, and jobs and so on and so forth. And almost in every case, there hasn't been adequate financing for the findings of the truth, or for, for, for reparations findings, right? So then victims and survivors become more disenchanted with the process, there's more marginalisation, so it's problematic. What I would say, though, is that it sets a standard. And so if we look at, for example, Morocco, where there wasn't a transition, there was a truth commission that had some findings before the Arab Spring. During that period civil society and activists were able to use the Truth Commission's findings to push the Moroccan king to liberalise the state. So it's a testament over time and it's been used, those findings are often used over the decades that follow to hold a state to account. So it's, it's a complicated 
context. The, the, the best case scenario is where you're po clearly post-conflict or post-regime. There is this widespread will. There's a lot of money to do the work. There is patience and time. And there's a real respect for the voices of victims and survivors. And that almost never happens in its mm. ideal form. Yeah, I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna refer to the idea of the ideal here in a way. I mean, I can imagine that the ideal version of this is that those who have been wronged come forward, articulate the facts of what befell them. They feel validated by that process of exposition. That is reinforced in turn if the perpetrators manifest genuine remorse mm. or at least a possible simulacrum of it for the purpose of the exercise and then and, and then the people who who the most is being asked of I suppose in a way the ones who, who are being asked to tell a public story about these terrible things that happened to them feel like uh, uh, they've got something real from it if they don't get concrete benefits in uh, in kind I can see that that might lead to the kind of disillusion you're talking about the risk, the, the risk of this sparking real conflict or resurgence of conflict comes when something has been ignored for a long time and a generation has passed. So, for example, Cyprus, which is undergoing its peace process, now they're in Switzerland, agreeing hopefully on the final stages of, of a peace agreement. If Cyprus, when the conflict ended in 1974, is to have a truth commission now, there is a real risk of that happening and of a resurgence of conflict and it's my real concern that that would happen mm. but in 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 contexts where the anger is still there there is a greater chance i believe that um that 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 anger can be channeled in a more productive way and you think the reason for that is because people who have had more recent acquaintance with the suffering that conflict and repression brings feel less inclined to take steps that might bring people that know back. the price of violence and they haven't forgotten has it got to the point uh, would you say where a truth commission of some sort has almost become a part of how you do conflict resolution and yes. so even in a circumstance you know as you're describing with cyprus where there may be very good reasons to not want to do it has it become the way we handle these situations and so you almost have to go through that process yeah there's a problem with the field that I work in, right? There's a problem with transitional justice and peace building, and that's toolkit peace building. And there is this idea that in order to heal the past, and heal is in, in used kind of suspiciously, you do X, Y, Z, you, you put perpetrators behind um, bars, you have a truth commission, you have a united narr history narrative, um, you vet you throw some development money in and you're done. And so truth commissions are absolutely kind of the go-to thing, but they need political will. And so the the most obvious block for this is often political will because also if, you, if, if perpetrators remain in power, they're not inclined to having their atrocities displayed across the world. And just quickly, what was interesting about Tunisia uh, in this idea of branded truth commissions is that the the testimonies so so the public hearings for Tunisia have been two days of this week and there'll be another set in December another set in January so it's not every day of public hearings televised right it's very targeted but they've live streamed it and it's the first truth commission you know in the world 
where people can follow what's happened from from anywhere in the world. So it's this interesting performance as well of uh, global performance of of truth that's powerful, but also it changes things, I think, when you're talking about the display of truth or the changing of these narratives on the scale that Tunisia is doing it. But yeah, absolutely, it's it's a it's something that is in the peace building toolkit and often brought out without really thinking about the consequences. And there are cases where it's a great it's a great idea, but I have a real problem with the idea, the fundamental idea of um, talking about the about creating unified historical narratives that everyone shares. I think that it is infrequent that that can happen and infrequently that that should happen. I think that we should be thinking about um, ways that multiple perspectives can live together within a society rather than kind of healing and coming together with a one unified narrative. Okay, it's time for number of the week where we take a number and uh, find a, a route of access to a news story via it. Who's going to go first this week? Cristal, you are our oh, returning man. champion. All right. Uh, so I think uh, it would be only right to put you up first. Okay, thank you for that honour, Adam. Um, my number is three. That is the number of songs it took Kanye West to uh, <laughs> perform uh, this week before dropping his mic and leaving. Um, and possibly now, leaving his career behind him. Possibly. Now, so, so I've been broadly following the Kanye stuff and the, his protests and the Trump, I would vote for Trump stories and the critiques of Hillary. And, and I have to say something right here and put it on the record for our podcast audience. Um, I had more of a problem with him dissing Beyonce this week. <laughs> Than, uh, than his his uh, profound admiration for Donald Trump. So maybe that's not entirely fair, and maybe <laughs> I'm maybe I'm um, generalising for the sake of to be sensationalistic. But but I was pissed that that he had a go at Beyonce and the fact that she should. What did he say that she um should remember who we should remember who we are um and uh, and step aside from the politics for Kanye, Mark. Have you got any hip hop related numbers? For uh, us, let me just have a look through. Um, no, it's an opinion poll from the Economist. So the opposite. <laughs> um, so my number was seventy or thirty. That, according to a National Centre for Social Research survey, is the split seventy thirty for both Leave and Remain voters on whether Britain ought to accept the, the what's seen as the key trade off. Uh, in Brexit um, negotiations about whether we should accept free movement of labour or free movement of people uh, in exchange for free trade. So the question of hard or soft Brexit. So apparently both sides, Remain voters and Leave voters, are split 70-30 on that question. So there's no uh, clear viewpoint on uh, whether uh, a hard or soft Brexit is favoured um, or nothing that you can interpret from a Leave or Remain vote. And I think this is something that really illustrates something we talked about before about the problem or one of the problems with referendums which is that uh, you are not at all encouraged to think in terms of trade-offs um, or, f- or forward planning and if this is the key trade-off that's facing Britain now 
you know, whether they go for a, a hard or soft Brexit, whether they prioritise migration controls or, or um, uh, uh, trade. The initial referendum offers you no guide to what you should do mm. uh, on that. There are two equally sized groups, equally divided uh, on the question. So uh, there's no straightforward division into soft and hard if this, if this uh, uh, survey is to be believed. Um, my feeling is that there are enough incentives there to uh, favour a strategy of imposing migration controls rather than um, uh, making the trade-off in either direction. But uh, as far as you, you do that, you can't be, according to this poll again, with the usual caveats, said to be doing something that's a, a clear expression of the will of the people. Okay, my number of the week is 53, which is the number of people, according to a new public opinion survey in the United States, who say that uh, Donald Trump's transition effort is either as well organized or better organized than previous transition efforts. And I raise this uh, because I think we all accept that public opinion is important in politics, and indeed it seems to sway a lot of the decisions we make, both reacting to it and uh, attempting to preempt it. But we live in a period of time in which it would seem even the thinnest relationship between what people in public opinion polls report themselves as believing and the underlying factual reality has been severed, that I simply can't, even if you were broadly in favor of the gist of what Donald Trump is about, which is that you smash the establishment to upset the status quo and build something else instead, I do not see any way in which you can look at the parade of disorganization and uh, uh, haphazard uh, desperation that constitutes the transition efforts that are currently going on. There was clearly no plan. There is clearly no sensible vetting process in place. There's a reality TV-style parade of all the possible candidates in and out to to talk to Donald Trump and then leave before the cameras. There is no way one could look at that and say that this has been well-organized or that it is in any sense sensibly put together. And yet, clearly because they like Donald Trump, and clearly because they are on Team Trump, people are prepared to tell pollsters that they believe that that is a true fact. <music> 2016 has been an Annis horribilis, to quote uh, the Queen, uh, star of TV to these days, um, politically for those with a liberal sensibility. It was already clear at the outset of the year that right-wing populism was a growing force in the world, but I think most of us had optimistically imagined that it was a dangerous force but a minority one. Two big shocks have since put that into doubt, however. The British vote to leave the European Union in June and then the election of Donald Trump as President of the United States this month. Those two blows having landed, shell-shocked eyes, uh, mine at least, are now turning to France where the National Front's Marine Le Pen is poised to make a strong run for the presidency in April 2017. Meanwhile, German Chancellor Angela Merkel has become the repository of liberal hopes for a firewall against the populist uprising, but has also, and has also announced that she will run for a fourth term of office next year. 
with her opponents on the centre-left sharing the struggles of all centre-left parties continent-wide, all eyes are on the hard-right alternative for Germany, which many fear is going to make a, a strong showing. With authoritarian leaders' grips hardening by the day in Russia and Turkey as well to boot, even level-headed people might reasonably ask, is liberal democracy and the world order built around it on the outs as a paradigm for political order? So, is all this overblown? Should we panic and fight and maybe arrest this? Or are we all doomed and we should start reconciling ourselves to that fact? Uh, Mark, where do you lie on the spectrum from uh, telling us all to calm down through to telling us to fight the good fight, ending in telling us not to even bother fighting because we're all going to hell regardless? Yeah, that that one. Doomed. Yeah. Um, You're in the, no, dad, you're I, in the I, dad's I, army camp. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're all doomed. I think... That, you know, this idea of populism, we probably need at this point to start to sharpen that a little bit. Populism until recently would be a term probably best, no, most associated with kind of semi-democratic, you know, or countries that oscillate between periods of military and civilian rule and those kind of things. But obviously this is a different phenomenon because it's happening in established democracies and whether we should try and sharpen that concept a little bit. I think we've talked about Gas Moody before, who is one of the people who is has been a, a you know a, has attempted that task to sharpen that idea of populism. And his part of his definition uh, is to do with the idea that a populism is a an ideology that lacks much content, but is defined by a view that. Uh, the people who are entirely pure ought to have control of political systems over the elites who are entirely corrupt. And again, uh, you know, neither of those things, in most cases, is entirely true. Not so entirely, neither, no. Neither the, the, the people are completely pure in their motivations, nor that the elite is entirely corrupt. Yeah, I, I don't uh, think we're going out on too much of a limb when we say that those might be uh, somewhat utopian conceptions. Yeah, although you uh, you might not think so if you listen to uh, the way that uh, you know uh, the likes of Nigel Farage or uh, uh, his acolytes talk about the elite, which includes everyone that's not him, apparently. Former bankers aren't elite. Yeah, well, we had this discussion last week, I really, it. about you know what is the the understanding of the elite that informs this populism, and I think you can't really understand it as economic in character. Or, or solely economic. So, mm. the the you know there was some discussion when Syriza in Greece and Podemos uh, in Spain were uh, you know on the up that this was a populism which was split between left and right, perhaps between North and South Europe, and that you know that if we want to call those parties populist, they did seem to have an economic dimension. Now, what we seem to be seeing more and more of is a populism where the elite that is being railed against is primarily a cultural elite. Mm. Uh, and I think that's quite a troubling phenomenon. It has some track record uh, and not, not, not a very historically edifying one. No, and also I, I think it's it's very, very problematic situation to have people who are members of the economic elite leading a movement which promises that you are going to get everything you want by sweeping aside this cultural elite. 
hmm. which we propose. Now, so you have like Donald Trump and Nigel Farage standing in a gold-plated lift, exactly, uh, while posing themselves to strike down the establishment. So by the establishment, they clearly don't mean themselves billionaires. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, they mean people who would regard a gold-plated lift as being in bad aesthetic taste. Absolutely. Yeah, and those people, that cultural elite, that liberal elite, uh, they might be annoying. You know, they might be smog. They might not share your values and they might look down their noses at you. But do they really have the power to determine how your life goes? I would say probably not in most cases. And the idea that you're going to get everything you want just by sticking two fingers up to Guardian readers mm. and, and while doing nothing to uh, interfere in any way with the uh, um, economic inequalities and privileges that uh, uh, you know actually do affect the way your life goes, mm. I think is a very troubling phenomenon. Well, like I mean, in the case of Donald Trump, uh, as if, if his plans are to be believed, or no doubt UKIP, if they were ever empowered, you know, you're talking tax cuts disproportionately for high earners and a deregulatory bonanza for the financial services. Which, if I understand the alleged economic substance of populism uh, as it's presented itself, ought to be the absolute antithesis of of where this goes. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I think for that reason, it's, it's an alarming development. But, I mean, if we, we look at France, obviously this week we've seen uh, the kind of beginnings of their um, primary contest to choose the presidential candidate. Well, Nicolas Sarkozy's right out, thank, thank God. So at least one undead ghoul from the grave isn't going to be sent out as a, as, as, as a retread. Because, you know, I think we've established yeah. now that maybe... Like long-serving candidates with a public image problem uh, are not the optimal avatars for opposition to. But this. that's what the other two candidates are, you know. Yeah. So you've got uh, obviously there's there's you know France has some uh, previous with this in uh, stop me if I'm wrong, but 2002 was it when uh, uh, Jean Marie Le Pen, Le Pen senior, yes, um, who, ended who, up in the runoff against uh, Jacques Chirac. Who, 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 to be fair, well, like he was a proper fascist. So you know whatever the terminological debates that are currently going on he would he would uh not have given you any challenge in designating him designating him as that hmm. yeah uh absolutely so you know and that that contest was framed as one between a crook and a fascist uh and if you look at some of the candidates who are proposed as the right candidate the left apparently has no chance um you know again that's crucial i think to this populist way the absolute collapse of uh, social democracy across Europe and the the, the wide-eyed liberal left, um, but uh, you know, I, I think there's worrying signs that the French contest could. It, it seems to have all the elements that, that have applied in in other states where the populist right candidate has won. Mm. Okay, you've got all the old guard. People have been kicking around French politics forever. A lot of them with, you know, some uh, skeletons in the closet or, you know, um, question marks over their character and people who it's very easy to portray as part of a corrupt elite. Um, And that seems to be all the French centre-right is able to put up at the moment against uh, Marine Le Pen, who in a lot of ways is a less obnoxious candidate than Donald Trump, and he won. Hmm. So... um, you know, uh, I, to me, and not knowing the, the French case intimately, 
I think it that it looks like quite a worrying set of ingredients um, for uh, you know a, another example of this kind of uh, um, populist wave spreading even further. Hmm. Well, what happens? What happens if she's elected to the world, to the to the to the liberal democratic world? Well, the EU's nothing, in trouble. Nothing good. I mean, the EU's done for, isn't it? Yeah. Um, if, if that's the way it goes, um, some people might say, "Well, good. <laughs> it's 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 time for that order." That uh, people who haven't thought, order people who haven't thought it through. Down. That's probably people who would say that. Uh, but yes, there's no shortage of them. Yeah, but the, I mean, you can see that as that it would be uh, a kind of almost logical next step in the collapse of a neoliberal economic mm. order with cosmopolitan liberalism as its sh- political shell. Um, and and all of that falling apart. I mean, but I, you know, I think the the key, and I think we may have mentioned this before, is about the collapse of the centre. I mean, and mm. th- that includes the centre right in France. I don't just mean social democrats and people who think they're on the left, but that, it seems that that whole spectrum of politics has got no answer to this at the moment. Mm. It's got no idea really of who it's for. Uh, what it's for, what it wants, you know, what what is uh, Alan Juppé's uh, utopia? If he was to get in, it seems that what's being offered is, you know, old school neoliberal economics slash mm. state spending, uh, get rid of social protections. Uh, that doesn't mm. seem to me like a very appealing prospectus. Yeah, I was saying this the the, the other day that uh, when I heard Alan Juppé was in the contest for this centre-right party nomination, uh, I was somewhat taken aback because I distinctly remember in French class when I was learning the language French at school when I was 15, uh, being asked who the president, who the, sorry, who the prime minister was. Uh, and it was a sort of trick question because they you know, wanted us to confuse president and prime minister. And I read stuck in my mind, it was Alain Juppé. So I'm 36 now. <laughs> and the guy who was prime minister when I was 15 is now the candidate for president, which tells you that they're kind of somewhat hidebound, some might say. But I think from the left wing perspective here, presuming that it, we we think it would be desirable for the electoral choices to be to go beyond fascists and ideological conservatives, which seem to be the two the two choices that that are there at the moment, is it the Would it be the pitch of sort of hypothetical, ideal, inspiring, uh, functional left that is yet to manifest that it that it tries to sell to this disenfranchised but mobilizable electorate a set of concrete proposals about jobs and economic distribution that is so compelling that it leads them to set aside their reactionary concerns about culture, about immigration, about diversity, and find a solidarity based on class or or whatever it is that takes everyone to the better place. I mean, is, I mean, that, it feels to me like that's pretty much what the left is trying to do. And everyone is telling them at the ballot box, sorry, I would prefer to embrace xenophobia, uh, red in tooth and claw. Is there some better way of doing it that they're just not doing? Or is there some other message that I'm, that I'm just not conceptualizing in my mind that, that, that is the message they need? 
Well, it's very difficult because I think the ideas can't float free of um, the material reality. So if you want to try and... A lot of people have, have, have said, you know, since Brexit, since Trump, that the problem is the left has forgotten how to talk about class, um, mm-hmm. which is in a lot of ways true. Okay, um, uh, but the old politics of class, so the old social democratic politics of class, relied on a set of institutions in the wider civil society and economy that don't exist anymore. Hmm. So, if you like, like organised labour, like organised labour, yeah. okay, like the idea that you run an economy by negotiation with the social partners, um, the idea that uh, you know there was some legitimate. Um, claim on your, you know, okay, your employer had some responsibility towards you right. as an employee rather than, you know, everybody works as a, a, an Uber driver yeah. uh, for the rest of their well, life. Well, the kind of, like, the, the metaphysical inviolability of your private property, no matter how disproportionately wealthy you might be, yeah. uh, etc. Yeah, so, and, and, and those things that just don't apply anymore, and it's hard for me to see what kind of collective identity you could rally around, because... It, unless it's going to be a radically different kind of politics, um, it requires collectivism. And it just seems to me that the kind of societies we're talking about don't provide a basis for collective uh, action of any kind. Um, And the solutions that are being offered at the other end of the political spectrum don't really require you to undertake any collective action uh, beyond collectively blaming some outsider group. Uh, it, it doesn't ask you to give very much up to mm. participate in that. You don't have to build uh, a movement. You don't have to particularly win arguments uh, against your fellow citizens. <laughs> you just have to uh, put all the uh, blame on you know, some combination of a cultural elite that's largely fictional and, in any case, you know, relatively powerless. Uh, and some outsider group, you know, immigrant or otherwise so I think it's very difficult to imagine how you could bring back the old politics of class um, without the institutional basis for collective mobilisation and action so I know that's I I don't know what the answers are but I think that's something that makes it very difficult to simply say well if you started talking about class again Hmm. it it might go some way to uh, correcting this complete decline and at least it would give some sense of purpose to the to the moderate left, which it, it seems to me it has no purpose at the moment. Um, mm. But uh, I'm not sure that in the absence of those that institutional basis, you're going to really get anywhere with that. Mm. I just I don't think we've learnt our lessons enough yet. Um, I think that populism will rise and. It will be, maybe this is a kind of classic old school left wing argument, but it will lead to to collapse of of particular structures. I mean, Trump is not good news for particular rights bearers um, and kind of broader institutions of state protection and so on and health and and that's and it's all being I mean it's being it's a trend that's being rolled back globally what you're talking about. I think that things need to crash before there is a 
um, a collapse of this um, polarization that we're seeing at the public level because I think it doesn't matter how well I totally take your point Mark and I think that's a really inter- I think it's a really sound perspective that without the collective structures you can't have the organizing principles anymore as well but um, even so even if you had them I don't think people would hear it anymore I think that we're globally far too polarized we're far too gone down that line of of fear of others and protection of self and your little kingdom imagined or otherwise mm. so i think that that needs to collapse before any any of that rethinking will be resonant with people mm. you think that's the, is it the uh you know th- this is going to come to a head when people start to understand that economically it's essential to have immigration. Uh, And, you know, you look at a country like Japan that is, uh, you know, going to suffer very badly for the fact that they haven't, you know, reached that conclusion. Is that the way things start to reverse? Okay, when the price of things starts to go through the roof because you're refusing to trade with China, then there's there's a backlash. Because my concern is that, you know, Trump, if we're talking about Trump, he almost doesn't have to do any of the things that he said he was going to do. His his sort of presence is enough. You know, just him in the White House achieves quite a lot. Right. If all you wanted to do was stick two fingers up at this, mm. at the cultural elite, America you can just sit there doing nothing for four years. America is great again, yeah. ipso facto, yeah. because, because, yeah, you've, because you've managed to, 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 to take him back. I mean, as a member of the sort of the hoity-toity uh, liberal elite myself, albeit one who seems to spend a disproportionate amount of his time fending off arguments from that supposed elite uh, at the same time. So, you know, talk about the centre struggling to hold. But the, the, there is an argument that's been constructed to the effect that the left in the United States, especially branching out of college campuses and then into the broader culture via the internet and the bubbles that it creates, became obsessed with identity politics um, to do with race and gender and sexuality and uh, the importance of political correctness as a project surrounding that as a tool for affirming people's essential dignity and rights, etc. And that uh, an, an obsession with that led to simultaneously a neglect of economic bread and butter issues that are that were essential for keeping the the democratic party's base together and uh also a kind of hectoring uh obsessive ever more refined discourse disciplining that was you know demanding that the average uh blue-collar worker in the Midwest would attain standards of excellence in uh, the precision and correctness of their political discourse that, you know, would not regularly be achieved on the stand- on the campuses of an Ivy League university and the kind of feeling they were constantly being attacked for dropping the ball uh, in, t- in terms of political correctness kind of annoyed these people. And then in the United Kingdom, that's been imported essentially via the internet to, a, to, a, to even less fertile soil given the demographics of the country. And kind of that, that raises, if, 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 if one takes that as sort of the, the, the proposition of what the problem is, I think it, it leaves us with, with with a major question over which 
of two things is it we're saying is wrong with the left that need to be corrected because one is a matter of communication right because if the proposition is okay the way in which the left especially the university educated uh, identity oriented left articulates its positions can indeed be insular and uh, smug and hectoring and alienating and all of those things and therefore, if, is there a problem with of affect where you basically need to have people in that category be more aware that if you're going to spread the correctness of your ideas, as is presumably the goal of politics, to a wider range of people, you need to be more considerate in thinking, well, where are these people starting? Uh, what are their lives like? What, uh, what is their world like? How do I communicate the importance of these issues in a way that will be more likely to move them towards where I am on them than it will be to alienate and repel them by the feeling that they're being attacked by a, a sort of uh, hateful, smug, uh, insular elite. And then there's a second, so that would be an issue of improving your, your way of presenting what you think in the hope of moving opinion in your direction. Then there's the idea that there is a kind of you know, essential fairness to the reactionary views of the white working class, that it used to be their country, that this sort of identity politics is about destabilizing what they want in terms of their relationship with their their wives, what they want in terms of their relationship with minorities, etc. And that what the left needs to do is row back hard on some of the claims for radical equality between the sexes, radical equality between the races, renegotiation of gender definitions and boundaries that basically you just need to find new and better ways of bringing people on board for those opinions. You actually need to jettison the project of trying to spread those opinions for the foreseeable future because you need the votes of of people who are reactionary and uh, that means the reactionary stuff needs to become a bigger part of your agenda. And which of those diagnoses is, is proposed seems to me very consequential because the idea that you know, the left needs to stop being a, a university campus-based talking shop that exclusively trades in barbed insults about everyone that isn't itself is manifestly correct to me as like a, as a, as a tool, a tool of improvement. The idea that we need to tell minorities and women uh, and, and 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 gay people that they that that the sort of half-assed uh, step forward towards something like equality that was taken up to the recent uh, up, up to the recent times was somehow uh, a massive leap too far, and we need to start pushing back and accepting that you know the default is actually. Uh, white male heterosexual supremacy as far as the eye can see. That seems to me a catastrophic failure of moral courage if it were to be to be done on the basis of electoral calculation right now. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think at the, at the same time, there is something in that critique. And generally, you know, I make it a rule for if somebody starts a sentence with the left thinks this and the right thinks that, I ignore everything they say for the next 10 minutes <laughs> because it, it's, it's, so, it's so reductive and we should be past that. And anyway, left and right isn't the only way of thinking about politics these days. But there's something in that criticism, OK, about the over-focus on identity politics. But at the same time, I think it's a very, very dangerous strategy to start thinking that the politics of equality and the politics of class have to be thought of in a totally separate realms and you've got to either do one or the other. Mm. Now, I know that the Daily Mail thinks being gay is some sort of bohemian lifestyle choice that is only undertaken by members of the cultural elite, but in fact, there are working class gay people 
and there are working class women and there are working class you know minorities and and all of this and the idea that you have to separate out those agendas and do one or the other pick one or the other is a complete false dichotomy to me is a mm-hmm. completely false choice now i think the the criticism in as far as there's something in it is that perhaps the way that those equalities issues have been framed has tended to prioritise a set of issues that perhaps are more of interest to people who are already in positions of privilege, okay, and uh, less to the people who, in a lot of ways, actually have most to gain from greater equality, who are not in positions of privilege. So, I, I think in terms of the, you know, there's a difficulty with which will be the first of your uh, proposals about communication and about. Um, about affect um, but it's not trivial for being about affect it's hugely important mm. um, but it's I think there is an issue there with perhaps the priority given to the interests of already privileged groups to you know uh, 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 the, the equality agenda is seen to have focused on them too much um, whereas uh, you know it, it should be or another way of dealing with that would be to roll it into class okay the mm. progress the willingness of of people who think they're on the left to talk about class has mm. really fallen away a long long way and and that language has been picked up mm. by, by by others so it's, it's it it seems to be that the left uh, or people who think they're on the left have maybe not been comfortable with that for a while mm. but actually there's no tension in terms of those two agendas there's no tension mm. uh, between you know, uh, feminism and the politics of, of class, yeah, uh, and or you know, gay rights or uh, you know, race equality mm-hmm. and the politics of class. They're they're mutually yeah, um, and, and you know, and, and and the idea that non-white people with low-paid jobs are somehow a distinct category from the working class yeah. is, is is pernicious and, yeah. and needs to be resisted. I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Poor Worldview. Please do. Please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Leave us a rating or a comment. We've, got, we've had some comments on, on iTunes. Uh, very pleased to have those. Please send us more. We, our hearts sing slightly when we see that people have taken the time to do that. Um, you can also like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Poor Worldview, where links to this go up as well as links to other things that people are, are, are doing. Recommend us, share us, spread the good word if you like us, etc. It makes us happy and may make those who encounter us as a result of it happy too. Our participants today have been Cristalia Kinthu. Hello. Where can people find you on social media? They can find me on Twitter at at Yakinthu, which is, as I always say, Y-A-K-I-N-T-H-O-U. It's actually, the, the rhythm of how you say it is in my head now. Uh, for whenever I think of your name, I always imagine an at in front of it. Mark. Yeah, I'm on Twitter if people are interested at Mark R. Goodwin. I'm Adam Quinn. That's Adam Quinn 161 on Facebook to be specific. So please follow me there. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Adam James Quinn, although I don't use that so very much. Uh, we did a large public event here last Wednesday uh, talking about the aftermath of the uh, U.S. election. So a link to that should be going up on our Facebook page soon if you want to keep an eye out for the, uh, for the video. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We'll be back soon in a couple of weeks, and we very much hope you will be too. Bye. Bye. Bye.